าอายมันเป็นอย่างอายมื่นตาอยู่มันเป็นอย่างจะคอยบ่เห็นหงมีหลายอย่างที่นอกบ้านเฮาตอนนี้ที่ว่ามั่นนั่นมันคืออีหยังละกินยานกับสมสัตว์ที่มันอดอยากมันหงสึกได้ถึงความเจ็บป่วยของพอคอยสิไปหาเจ้าพ่อบอเป็นญาติคอยเสียน้ำหาเจ้าอยู่ใส่ละเชิงสวรรค์บอสวรรค์กับพ่อซำนั่นละบ่มีอย่างดอกมีบ่ยุดติดกับมองใดสียุดติดแต่กับคนโอเค so today we'll continue with our season three coverage of big Asian uh, award winners uh, with a Pichat Pong or a Seth Akul's 2010 film Uncle Boon Me who can recall his past lives uh, from Thailand. However, before we get into that, as usual, we will go into our cultural consumption section. So Jason, uh, what have you been doing, uh, watching, or playing since last time we spoke? So I started playing the 2016 game XCOM: Enemy Unknown. I spent around 10 hours playing it, and I gave up because I felt like um, it's a well-made game, uh, a great update on the originals, but I wasn't having so much fun because I was just using the same tactics of pushing forward slowly into the battlefield and setting everybody on Overwatch. And uh, I decided to call it quits and um, start the Gabriel Knight trilogy of uh, point-and-click adventure games instead. Did you get the original or did you get the the remake? I think the remake is only available for the first one, but still. Oh, I'm not sure if I've got the original remake. Um, uh, it seems like the graphics are the originals. Um, you got the voice acting from Tim Curry and Mark Hamill in it. Okay, okay. Even though the original is, uh, some people consider it worth it. For the voice acting with uh, the Star Trek guy, I forget his name. Oh, Mark Hamill. No, that's the Star Wars guy. Oh, Star. There's a Star uh, Trek guy. The guy who played Worf. Uh, oh, Michael uh, Bourne. Michael. Yeah, I think he's in there as well. Okay. Uh, but yeah, almost everybody recommends the remake just because the it makes gameplay so much easier, enjoyable. The the first one because the graphics are because it the game relies a lot on visual clues and being able to find things on screen, uh, you end up doing a lot of pixel hunting in the original. It's really hard to tell things and the gameplay can be a little bit uh, annoying, whereas the, the remake alleviates a lot of that. Um, and it's 
sort of universally a better game with the exception that it doesn't have those actors playing the characters. Yeah, I've definitely got the original then because I've got Tim Curry doing a sort of uh, New Orleans accent. And uh, I'm uh, pretty much clicking on every single object and um, listening to the descriptions. There must have been uh, reams and reams of writing on this because everything has a description. It's a, yeah, it's a great game. It's not my favorite point and click I, but uh, the story is great. The you know it's a classic of the point and click genre, of course. Yeah, well, um, it's available on good old games and it's pretty cheap. I've had it in my library for nearly a decade now, I think. Uh, yeah, and um, I just decided to spend more time practicing Japanese as well. And um, in terms of cinema, because this is spooky season, as the Americans call it. Uh, and Halloween's approaching. Um, I've been trying to watch more horror films, and um, I started um, with the 1978 film The Shout, um, which you mentioned um, when we talked about Barbarian Sound Studio in an earlier episode of Heroic Purgatory, because both films have a sound engineer as a protagonist. Um, The Shout is available on YouTube, so I dipped in for fun, and I really enjoyed, like, the psychological um, thriller aspect of it, like breakdown of a marriage in rural England due to a, a vagrant with a killer voice um, forcing the husband out of his home, essentially. I thought it was um, a lot of fun. Great performance from Alan Bates as said uh, vagrant. Um, Alan Bates struck me as like the English Oliver Reed, um, you know, tall, dark, powerfully built and lusty. And like the way he delivers these monologues about living with the Aborigines in the outback and learning all these mystical arts is really um, unnerving. Yeah, Alan Bates is one of those uh, actors who is not as renowned as some of others of his generation, but he's done some fantastic, fantastic films, including starting from Zorba the Greek to the shout, to you know all the others that he's uh, that he's participated. They, they many escape me, but they're he's done. He's he's lesser known actor who has had a great career. Yeah, I only know him women, from women his, in love. Women yeah, in love that's from Kiss the particular one where he has that nude wrestling scene, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, yeah, like the shout. It's available on YouTube. Um, highly recommend it. And there's another film on YouTube, which I watched, um, 1981 film called The Appointment, um, with Edward Woodward, um, who some may know from The Wicker Man, uh, the original, and not the Nicolas Cage remake. Which is a genius in its own way. Yeah. Um, have we tackled folk horror on this podcast? I don't think we have. I don't think we have. I don't think there's anything quite like The Wicker Man in, in Asian cinema, although you feel free to correct me if that's not the case. Yeah, I can't think of anything right now. I think now. that's a uniquely Western sort of like that. Of course, folklore in general, of course, exists. Like uh, a lot of Japanese ghost stories come to mind as like a, a rough equivalent. But this particular brand of folklore with witches and uh, and sacri- human sacrifice and uh, uh, and sort of especially tied with Christianity, as it is the case with Wicker Man, uh, I think that's that's very, very European, uh, like uh, in essence. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Maybe the curse of the um, dog god or X Cross, some like low budget horror movie like that from Japan. Uh, it's something that, yeah, bears research, I guess. So, yeah, the appointment. I read an article about how it was recently rediscovered on the BFI website because so few um, uh, 
copies of film were struck and um it was part of a larger project of like tv movies that were abandoned and um it had like ill-fated theatrical runs and it essentially disappeared and then someone found uh like film and uh so it had this mystique um i couldn't quite get it out of my mind and then i saw some people mention it on film twitter and decided to look on youtube and it's there and so the story is essentially about a teenage girl who seems to have psychic powers who gets mad at her father played by edward woodward for not attending her musical recital and she uses those powers to punish him as he goes on a drive uh through north wales and um yeah, it, it's it's a simple story with like uh, probably best defined by like the dream sequences that take place uh, throughout it. Some really atmospheric ones of like the father driving through um, North Wales and like these ominous uh, signs like dogs chasing him and so on. But probably the highlights are the very beginning and the very end. Um, the very beginning starts with this girl getting attacked by this supernatural force in the forest, and it's like I watch a lot of horror films, but that one was really terrifying like her disappearance was really terrifying and then um like there's a lot of um sort of freudian psychosexual shenanigans in between this parent and child clash and then you get to like the driving bit uh which the dream sequences sort of um foretell or foreshadow what's going to happen at the end and there's just this massive excessive car crash that's really memorable it's quite a spectacle so uh yeah it's on youtube and if anybody can watch it it's an, another horror film i could recommend not the best but really interesting i watched uh the tales from the dark side anthology film from 1990 another one on youtube um performances from christian slater julianne moore steve buscemi ray dawn chong and deborah harry in stories that are akin to hbo's tales from the crypt uh with monsters played by people in rubbery suits that's what i was thinking uh, but it's a different it's a different property right it also this one was also like a tv show right yeah it was uh around the same time that you had the new twilight zone you had um uh uh tales from the dark side the tv show um yeah and i think tales from the crypt was a little bit later if i'm remembering by i mean i'm familiar with both but i i don't think i've ever seen any single episodes of tales from the dark side yeah uh like tales from the crypt this one was uh late I think it's late 80s, early 90s, like staples of TV that had numerous movies made of it. I think there was a couple, there were a couple of movies in the 70s. Yeah. So, uh, Tales from the Dark Side is early 80s, 82, 83, whereas Tales from Creek was 89. That's the first season. Yeah. And, um, yeah, like I, I suppose you could say Creepshow kicked off like this interest in like, um, anthology stories uh and uh yeah uh, tales from the dark well, side twilight twilight zone did but oh uh, in the 80s the new twilight zone no i'm I'm saying twilight zone was the first one but you're saying in the 80s was crib show that kind of re- re- revitalized that yeah the romero one uh the movie so yeah if it's akin to tales from the crypt and it's okay um uh, tales from the dark side is okay it was always the, like the lesser of the two there was also a, a Outer Limits remake in the eighties, wasn't there? Uh, that's nineties, and there were quite a that, few seasons. Was that nineties? Yeah, I don't think I don't think people speak of that as much. Or maybe it wasn't good. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I enjoy the first, the original, but I've never seen the remake. Yeah, I uh, I I remember watching it during the nineties, and some episodes stand stand out, but there's a lot of repetition um, in some of them, like uh, we're constantly using androids as a metaphor for the way humans mistreat each other or like alien invasions and uh like the government's being taken over 
Um, yeah. there's, there's also like the Ray Bradbury theater series as well. And um, yep, yep, I, I remember that one as well. Yeah, Tales from the Unexpected. So these are like other shows people can watch if they're interested. Uh, I watched another horror anthology called Rampo Noir, um, which uh, will be my Halloween post for this year. Um, essentially, four tales based on the, the writings of Edogawa Rampo, who is like um, late 1800s, uh, early uh, uh, 1900s writer. Um, I think he died in the 60s, actually. Like, the Japanese Edgar Allan Poe, because he was inspired by Poe's writing. Um, lots of uh, uh, supernatural, psychosexual stuff going on in his works. And um, Rampo Noir takes some of his more famous, well, takes some of his famous ones like The Caterpillar and uh, Mirror Hell. And um, essentially, you've got four different directors giving very different variations on these stories. It looks like they had total creative freedom and they had top stars of the time like Ryuhei Matsuda and Tadanobu Asano starring in these um sort of twisted tales and uh not scary but like um the visual design and some of the stories is fantastic um some of the some of the like body horror on the screen is really stomach churning as well and then um I rounded out uh everything with watching a Pichapong Verisephical's um Syndromes and the Century uh, which draws upon his parents' experiences as doctors. Um, it's a film shot in two halves, one set in a country hospital and focused on a female doctor, the second focused on a city hospital with a male doctor. And there's like repetition of events in, two, in the two halves, recurring characters, uh, rich environment, um, atmosphere, and um, like you're getting a a glimpse of the daily routines and the characters which are like shot in long takes uh and like subtle differences um play out you've got the distinct differences between locations but then it's kind of like the tone of the narrative gets a bit darker in the second one as we see people with war wounds and mental health problems who spend lots of time in a nightmarish basement where they're hidden away but then the film ends on this really um memorable upbeat code as we watch patients and staff at the hospital exercise to this infectiously cute sort of uh, Shibuya K dance music before the credits roll. So uh, yeah, that was my cultural consumption uh, since the last time we spoke. All right. So uh, uh, with uh, respect to me, I, as, I, as we've talked about online, I finally decided to pull the trigger and get a Steam Deck, which is, uh, doesn't, is not a specific content, but is, I guess, a medium for future content. Uh, and it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'm happy with it. Of course, I, I knew I had done a ton of research before it. Um, a couple a couple of things that surprised me is how big it is. Uh, or at least it feels big in your hands. And it's even, oh, of course, I've only had it for a couple of days, but I'm still not quite comfortable holding it. It's not as comfortable as the Switch, for example, which is not that much smaller. But it is, I think, just smaller enough that it makes a difference. Um, how is it weight-wise? Uh, yeah, not not too heavy. I mean, the weight is not so much the problem. Well, I can imagine if you're like not ha if you don't have your hands rested on something, then it probably could. I guess it could get tiresome pretty quickly. Uh, but it's it's the shape and size. Well, more of the size, really. Like your hands are too far apart, basically. Okay. It doesn't feel like um. Could I don't know. It it feels weird. Like if you, especially you are used to the PSP, if you ever try a Steam Deck, it's gonna feel very very different. It's gonna take some getting used to. Yeah. 
Uh, so, you know, I tried, you know, I installed a few games from my Steam library. I tried them out. I haven't done anything. I haven't installed GOG yet, which you can do. I haven't tried any emulators yet, which, of course, you can do that as well. Uh, and I think, the, I think the Steam Deck is a good investment overall because I think you can, you know, it's, it's good hardware. It's unquestionably good hardware. And so it's, it's good hardware, but it's also repairable hardware. So if something happens, it's not, it's not going to cost you a, a, a a fortune to repair it it's you can buy off the shelf components to replace components that are already are uh uh on the steam back all the software is open source so that means that even evolve just decides to abandon this tomorrow others can pick it up the community can pick it up and sort of like provide updates for it and all that yeah so it's i think i think it's overall a good investment i think one of the negatives that i would mention about it is that if you buy it now you have to be a little bit patient with game compatibility. Game compatibility is not quite there yet. Um, so yeah, there are there are very few games. Well, in my library, at least I, I don't know, I don't have a good statistical average about all possible games on Steam, but at least in my library, very few games were fully compatible with a Steam Deck. Uh, there were games that were not at all compatible. There were games that had not been tested yet. So that means that Steam doesn't know whether or not these will be compatible with Steam Deck. And I haven't, I didn't try them. And there are games that are a lot of games that are not 100% compatible, but playable on the Steam Deck. And that, that can sort of be a crapshoot crap shoot as to whether or not it will be a good experience. Like a lot of, a lot of for example, games that are supposed, are, were originally meant to be played with uh, a mouse and keyboard. So if your Steam Deck controller tries to emulate that, but it, it doesn't work as well depending on what game exactly you're playing. Yeah, I was going to ask, would you say strategy games don't quite work because you need a mouse and keyboard with a hotkey? I would guess so. I guess, I mean, of course, the Steam Deck is also a computer, so you can actually hook a mouse and keyboard to it and perfectly fine play it. There's, it's going to be the same, except you're going to be looking at a Steam Deck screen as opposed to your regular computer screens, which then sort of, sort of defeats the purpose, I guess. But if you, if you, for example, want to have uh, separate your gaming from your... Uh, you know, normal work computer, then I suppose you can use it as that. It, Definitely. It, work, it, would, it, would, it would work perfectly fine. And of course, you know, a lot of games that are played with a mouse and keyboard, because that's one way to play them, are also, opt, uh, you know, the, the creators of the game can make it such that a controller works. So games that have been optimized for a controller actually work fine with, the, uh, with a Steam Deck. Even though, for example, that's not the ideal way to play them. Yeah, would you recommend um, people listening just wait a couple of months to see if there's another iteration of uh, sort of hardware with uh, different sort of shape and feel, and uh, more games added to the list? I would say this. There's, I mean, there are many considerations. Uh, I would say if you want to buy your Steam Deck and have a massive library of games immediately available, then wait. Yes. Uh, hmm. If you have like a few specific games that you want to play first, and then you can verify that those will be playable on the Steam Deck, then I don't think there's any reason to wait. To wait. Uh, you can just buy it and then, and then play the games that you enjoy the most. And then as, as more games become available, then you can sort of expand your Steam Deck library. Yeah. Uh, so it's, I think it's a very much on a case-by-case basis. I would say... Of course, there's also the whole world of emulation that is available for the Steam Deck, and it, it works really fantastically for most emulators. The, the, the only thing I was going to add to that, if, if you want a, a Steam, if you're planning to buy a Steam Deck, 
Steam Steam Deck solely for emulation, I think it's overkill. I mean, of course, the Steam Deck would work fantastically for that, but I think there are cheaper devices out there that might work just as well. Yeah, it's I yeah you with the Steam Deck you're getting quite powerful hardware, so it makes sense to try and use more modern games on it as well. Yeah, and every game that I've tried so far, of course, I don't really have any games that are too demanding, but I have some games that are reasonably demanding, work perfectly fine on the Steam Deck. Uh, yeah. And the ones that, of course, are compatible with the Steam Deck. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's really, it's really uh, you know, obviously the small screen helps because the game doesn't have to render on as large of a screen as it would, like if you were playing 4K or whatever on a PC. Yeah. And I recommend, I over my, overall, I would recommend it. I think it is, if you are a gamer, if you are going to play, and if you do have a considerable Steam library, I think it is a, a good investment. Okay. All right. So um, other than that, I've been uh, reading two books. Well, one book uh, is an audio book, and that is The History of the Siege of Lisbon by José Saramago. And it is a story, it is a, 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 a sort of a historical novel about sort of like the siege of Lisbon by the, when, when, uh, when uh, I think Spain and Portugal was occupied by uh, the Arab Empire. I, I don't know if there was, was a... It the Moors? Yes, yes. And there's the, the, I think the Christians retook Lisbon back then with the help of crusaders. Yeah. Uh, and, but however, the story is not told as directly historical, but it is told from the point of view of a proofreader who's proofreading a, a historic a history book. There's this, um, uh, there's a, all this metatextual sort of undertone to the novel, and the proofreader is also contemplating about oh, what the, uh, whether the author did really his research. Uh, and at some point, he decides to actually change something which he's not supposed to do, so he gets in trouble with his supervisors. So there's, there's that layer of the story, but of course, there's also quite a bit about the actual history itself. Yeah, sounds interesting. It is interesting. Uh, then I'm, read, I'm reading a novel by uh, Isaac Asimov called The Gods Themselves, and it's about these uh, scientists who accidentally discover that they can transport very small amounts of, of matter uh, back and forth from a different universe, uh, but because of the laws of physics in this universe are different, whenever they bring matter back from that other universe, it, it is able to sort of decompose into as it adapts to their to the current laws of physics able to release a lot of energy so that's essentially a means of of producing unlimited free energy it sounds like it could be turned into a weapon as well yes well there's there's a lot of that there's also a lot of ego going on about whether or not it was our universe that discovered the process or it was their universe and that's where the gods it comes from are we the gods or are they are we the gods in their perspective or are they the gods in their perspective who who initiated this process and there's a lot of debate and there's like one scientist i'm I'm still i I started very recently so i'm still in the beginning but there's one scientist with a very big ego who refuses to accept that it was them the other universe the the people whatever creatures of the other universe that were the first to initiate this process uh yeah also, in regard to movies, this is around the time, and I mentioned this before, where I tried to start slowly to catch up to the movies from this year. Uh, I'm usually not very good about, you know, keeping up to everything released. I try to go to the cinema as much as I can, but I, it's generally not, not a thing that I'm very good at. So it's usually at the end of the year that I try to kind of cramp in as, uh, as many as I can. So I watched three movies. I watched The Northmen, which I've been planning to... To watch for a long time. I wanted to catch in the theaters, but uh, I just couldn't at the time. 
Uh, and it was pretty good. I enjoyed it. I Not as much as I thought I would. Uh, I think at the time we mentioned, I was curious to see how much is uh, takes from Conan. And I can confirm that it takes a lot from Conan. It is, uh, it takes, and it, of course it's not, this is not anything uh, peculiar about it. I mean, the, the director himself has uh, sort of uh, admitted that it takes from Conan. And it's also, I didn't realize this before watching, but it's actually, it's based on the story that inspired Hamlet. Yeah, I saw that um, used a lot in reviews. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it's um, uh, and it's obvious. Like the connections are so so obvious, and it's a good story. There's action. I think it's. Uh, I, I I I somehow I was prepared for it to be a lot more violent than it actually was, and it wasn't. It wasn't really that violent. It wasn't really that graphic. I mean, when when it is graphic, it is really graphic. But it's. It wasn't. I don't know. Somehow the critical reviews made made it sound like. It was going to be like outrageous, but I I don't know. I thought it was a for for the genre of film that it is. I thought it was pretty tame. Yeah. Uh, I watched Nope, sort of the the alien movie, the alien invasion movie by Jordan Peele. Any good? I I enjoyed it. It was it was a decent story. I, I kind of like the mystery. I like the fact that Jordan Peele doesn't go into uh like details about the aliens they, we we are very much focused of humans we have no idea about sort of like these aliens it's one alien spoiler alert uh, about their motivation why they are what they do is it's it is just there's this sort of mysticism about it and i i kind of i i appreciate that choice it doesn't go it doesn't bog you down with details and exposition and explaining why what whatever uh, however, I think like most Jordan Peele movies I think it overdoes it with a metaphor and I think the metaphor is a bit confusing at the time whatever he's trying to say. He's, the, the whole movie is about this sort of connection between humans and animals and how we can sort of like coexist with quote-unquote wild beasts. And the alien is very much cast in this light of an untamed beast that they have to sort of defeat in the same way they would defeat any wild beast. Um, I think he's sort of like, uh, the, the, there's some inconsistencies in his style, much like the other two movies that he's made so far. I do, I do think that uh, the hype around Jordan Peele is a bit exaggerated, but I definitely... He's definitely a director with potential. Okay. What else? Oh, and I watched a the very recently released next Netflix movie, All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, right. It, uh, how is it? Is that getting good reviews? Yeah, I, well, it's getting very good reviews, but I have to say so far, uh, it is my, my, would be my top film of the year. Wow. It is. Oh, of course, again, keep in mind that I've not that watched that many uh films from 2022 so that's gonna be uh so it's it's a very it's a it's a i think worth it's praiseworthy but take that with a grain of salt because i've only watched a handful of 2020 20, <laughs> i don't know how many 20s i mentioned there but 2022 uh, because it will see even the end of the year if that's too hard but it was a great movie it was a great movie it was uh uh the action was fantastic visually it was just remarkable it was just so beautiful such beautiful to watch and it was the thing that i appreciate the most is because i i uh, it's based on the novel All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remarque, and I'm a big fan of his. I've read a few of his novels, and it treats it treats the the source material very well. It's pretty faithful. It's not a hundred percent faithful. There's some big parts that they leave out. Yeah. Uh, but the parts that they choose to adapt, they adapt pretty faithfully, and it is one of the best war movies that I've seen, maybe in the last ten years. Maybe in the last 20 years. I don't know. I can't think of all the war movies that have been released in the last 20 years. But it is one of the best ones, if not the best one. 
Uh, and it really makes you feel the fear of the soldiers as they're sort of charging the enemy in World War I, uh, which I think World War I is a great subject to make movies about. I, 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 I don't think we see enough of them. I, I think maybe two seasons ago when we did our Christmas episode, I mentioned uh, Joyeux Noël. Yes, it was a Christmas special, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that was another great uh, Christmas movie. And this is uh, a Christmas movie, uh, a World War One movie. And this is not uh, too dissimilar from that one. Of course, it's a completely different story, but sort of like I think the spirit, it kind of follows that about the sort of like the the willingness, the unwillingness to fight. But again, of course, this is after that. So the the, the soldiers have gotten over that, but it is of the trauma that they experience and the, the the fear and the sort of like the disillusionment with the fighting and how uh, this kind of huge separation between the actual foot soldiers that do the fighting and the generals on the top who sort of tr- have not really uh, understood that modern warfare is is different than the sort of like the wars of the past that they remember where there's like this talk of nobility and uh uh, and glory and honor, and it's like like the modern warfare, which is what kind of World War One is known for, is a completely different beast. It's very dehumanizing. It's very, it's a meat grinder. Exactly, exactly. I mean, trench warfare is sort of like, of course, we've talked about this before, and the American Civil War was sort of like known as the first modern war, but in in the scale of World War One, that was the first war. Yeah, at an industrial scale. So, so yeah, it's a fantastic movie. I strong, of course, I, I think you mentioned you don't have Netflix anymore. Yeah, like with, with great regret because um, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities has uh, launched and looks like it's got some great content. But from your descriptions... That's a, 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 like a Tales of the Creep, a Crypt anthology show, isn't it? Exactamundo. Yeah, so it's very apropos. Yeah, so that and um, All Quiet on the Western Front look like they would be good watches. Uh, perhaps uh, reasons to get Netflix again. Yeah, I would, again, I would recommend just getting it for that and to taking that and a bunch of other shows and then, and then uh, you know, unsubscribing again. Of course, I think now <laughs> they've released a tier with commercials if you if you're want to save some money. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that has uh, propagated to the UK, but at least here in the US, you can, it, 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 it is. Uh, it's like half the price or something. I think like uh, there was a news report that stated just under a million people have stopped subscribing to streaming services in the UK due to like um, the cost of living crisis. Is that a lot or is that not a lot? That I guess that's a lot, just under a million is people. It? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess, I mean, because Netflix has like 40, 50 million subscribers, so just under a million, I guess it is like 2%, so it is significant, but I don't know. I guess for the, just focusing on the UK alone, I guess that is a big number. Um, yeah, but yeah, anyway, not much else to say. All Quiet on the Western Front, fantastic film. My site, like I said, my favorite of the year. A bit too early to say, but uh, we'll see uh, if we do our top tens again, like we did last year. Okay, we'll see if it's still around uh, by the end of the year. Which yeah, is it's gotten fantastic reviews too. So it's so I'm not alone. I'm not alone in that. It's it's very well received. Okay. Okay, so I think I think that's enough for our media consumption, our cultural consumption section. So we can now move on into our news segment. And as I understand, Jason, you've uh, written a few things down that you'd like to inform us of. So yeah, um, just like to talk about uh, a variety of topics, uh, beginning with home media releases. So it's October and probably the biggest Asian film release this month 
as far as I'm concerned, from Criterion is uh, Cure, which was released on Blu-ray, 4K digital restoration. And um, it's got a new conversation between director Kyoshi Kurosawa and uh, Ryusuke Hamaguchi, who did uh, Drive My Car, and who studied under Kurosawa. Uh, and um, yep, it's one of the great Japanese horror movies um, from 1997, and I hope we can review it at some point. Uh, also, um, yeah, uh, Eureka Entertainment are releasing the, uh, entries in the Inner Line of Duty series, beginning with Yes, Madam on 12th of December, and, um, that will be followed by Royal Warriors on the 23rd of January, 2023. Uh, Kim Stim, uh, have announced that they've acquired, um, Plan 75, the Chie Hayakawa film that, uh, made major waves at Cannes Film Festival and it has been selected as Japan's submission to the best international feature category of the Academy Awards 2023 and uh, there's no date on when they'll release Plan 75 um, probably sometime in 2023 in America and also Arrow have announced um, Blu-ray release for Teruo Ishii's The Executioner Collection which stars Sunny Chiba and that's going to be in January 2023. Um, and then we move on to uh, awards. And um, it was recently announced that Park Chang-wook's decision to leave has swept the Korean Association of Film Critics Awards with six wins. Um, best Film, Best Director, Actress uh, for Tang Wei, Screenplay, Cinematography and Music. That's, that's another film that I try to watch this week, but it's it keeps frustrating like every time i go to movie to movie's website every every two or three days and it says to be a tba tba for for release date and it was like it was supposed to be released in the fall and we're already in november so you're cutting it pretty close to the definition of fall there uh it's currently playing in cinemas in the uk perhaps it's a, a, a limited theatrical release in america before it goes it to is I, yeah it is but it is nowhere near where i'm i'm at so i'm i'm kind of patiently and anxiously waiting for the uh, whole media release. At, it's supposed to be Mubi, and I'm happy to, to, that it's there because Mubi, I think, is a is a good underrated platform. But I, <laughs> they don't even give a date; they just say TBA. Just uh, have to continue being patient. Yeah, I suppose. And uh, yep, yeah, and the final news uh, segment is in production. So, found out earlier this week that a Taiwanese TV show called Bloody Smart. Uh, has wrapped production and um, why that stood out to me is because uh, it's based on the works of Junji Ito and um, he's involved in the production and so um, from what it looks like all of his famous characters are living in the same town but it takes on sort of like a anthology show uh, format where you get one character per episode so you've got Slug Girl, Tomie and uh, many other uh, people uh, who are famous from his horror manga and um, going to wrap up this section with news that Hirokazu Koreeda is making a drama for Netflix called The Makanai, Cooking for the Mako House. It's a drama about a young woman who moves to a house and becomes a Makanai, uh, a person who cooks meals for apprentice geisha. And uh, I suppose what's interesting about this production uh, beyond um, sort of Corey making something for Netflix is that he's allowing younger directors um, to handle some of the episodes uh, in terms of direction and writing 
and names involved include Mami Sunada, who's a documentarian famous for looking at uh, production Studio Ghibli with her work The Kingdom of Dreams Madness. You've got uh, Megumi Tsuno, uh, who had a segment in 10 Years Japan, Hiroshi Okuyama, who um, directed Jesus, which I think you watched and liked. Yes, I enjoyed that movie a lot. And uh, Takuma Sato uh, of any crybabies around fame, and that one got good reviews as well. It will be interesting to see how, because obviously he's going to be, I, I don't know if this, it's the same term in Japan, but uh, the showrunner, right? Yeah, like producer. Yeah, I mean, they're different, but he's the supervisor. He's, it still has to, I don't know, of course, maybe he'll give them completely creative freedom, but it will be interesting to see directors with, you know, maybe a style that is not particularly similar to Koreda's, see how they are able to either adapt their style to sort of create a show with a holistic vision or to change their style and see how, how that works out. If uh, Well, it's on Netflix, so I'm sure we'll get to see it. Yeah. And uh, that's it for news. So it's about time that we go into the episode's main discussion, and that is, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, a Pichet Pong's were Seth Akul's 2010 Thai drama, a supernatural drama, Uncle Bone Me, who can recall his past lives, which, as I understand, and I'm sure you'll talk more about this, is part of a larger art project. So with that respect, Jason, why don't you go ahead and give us a summary of the film and uh, its various accolades? So Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives, is a 2010 film written and directed by Apichapon Verisafakul. It was inspired by the 1983 book A Man Who Can Recall His Past Lives, which was written by Buddhist abbot, and forgive my pronunciation, Fra Sripariyatiweti. I should have practiced that. Um, the film... Well, I don't know about other Thai names, but I think we can call a Pichetpong Joe, because that's kind of a name he goes by often. I don't yeah. know why, but, but it seemed to be everywhere in the, that I, I kept reading about him. But anyway, please go on. So, yet the film was the final installment in a multi-platform art project called Primitive. So, uh, Primitive is like a gallery work, a, a book, and a feature film that all utilized the folklore of Northeast Thailand and history of the Thai government's brutal repression of communists in the area in the 60s and 70s. And the gallery work um, contained something like uh, seven different films or, uh, that were playing con- currently, I think. And um, yeah, so Uncle Boon Mi, who can recall his past lives, premiered at the 2010 Cannes Film Festival where it won the Palme d'Or becoming the first Thai film to do so. So, what's the story about? Um, the film is set in Isan, a northeastern region of Thailand, and follows the title character, Boon Mi, a middle-aged farmer who is dying of kidney disease. As he prepares for death, he is visited by his sister-in-law, Jen, and his nephew, Tong. The three are soon joined by the ghost of Boon Mi's dead wife, Kue, and then his missing son, Boon Song, who appears in the form of a jungle creature called a monkey ghost. During conversations over the course of a few days, Boon Mi recalls scenes from his past lives before making a pilgrimage to a cave where his first life began. I think not just this, uh, uh, not just this film, but I think the entire project, he featured a lot of uh, amateur collaborators and actors, right? 
Yeah, he went to local areas and worked with the sort of local populations, drawing upon their memories and so forth. Yeah, and he worked a lot with like high school students and aspiring film students. Like I, th- I believe, and I, I, I couldn't find exact information about this, but the, the the there's a segment towards the end of the film where there's still pictures of children or, or young people, young men dressed as soldiers and taking. Uh, taking pictures with in my notes i have him as bigfoot yeah because a guy in a gorilla costume (laughs) yeah it's uh it's the monkey ghost and maybe there's a very significant some significant story behind him in in thai folklore buddhist folklore but in my notes i have him as bigfoot so i'm just gonna call him bigfoot yeah Uh, and taking i believe those were collaborators that were part of like other components of this primitive project that you mentioned yeah, like um, one of the videos has um, sort of teenage boys constructing um, an alien ship out of very like basic components that they could find around the village. Yeah, at, and people at, sleep in it, go to sort of like isolate themselves from the world and meditate. Yeah, and uh, yeah, this is uh, sort of like uh, born from a gallery piece and a feature film that made it into cinemas and where it won um, many awards at the Thailand National Film Association Awards of 2011. It won Best Sound and was nominated for Best Cinematography and Supporting Actress. Uh, it won major, uh, made major waves at the Cannes Film Festival 2010 where it won uh, Best Film or Andor. And Cahiers uh, du Cinema named it Best Film of 2010. And in 2019, when they did uh, Best Film of the 2010s of the last decade, they put it in fourth place. At the Asian Film Awards 2011, it won Best Film. And um, I threw in BBC4 World Cinema Awards 2011, it was a nominee. And uh, yeah, because that was how I first encountered it. Yeah. And I believe this was, um, uh, just going back to the Asian uh, Film Awards, it won Best Film, but I think Best Director was uh, Lee Chan Dong, right? Poetry. Uh, poetry. Uh, yes, I, I believe that's correct. Uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean, of course, it made waves, perhaps unintentionally. I'm not uh, watching some interviews and reading some interviews with the director. I wasn't entirely convinced that this was ever intended for like sort of that kind of widespread release. I think it was always meant to be like a part of like this holistic art project that he was involved with, perhaps with other people. I forget. Yeah. Uh, so that that's 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 I think that's that's an interesting history about this film. Although if you do, and we'll talk about some of the other films, I did not watch uh, Syndrome and the Century, but I I did I rewatched Tropical Malady in preparation for this episode. And there's it's really not that different. His style has been consistent for throughout his career, which it doesn't. I mean, he's not a very prolific filmmaker. He makes movies every few years, and then he of course is involved in other art projects. I think photography, maybe I don't remember exactly. Um, but okay, so let's let's kind of take a step back and kind of approach this in our usual way. So Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what's your history with this film? When did you first encounter it? What did you first watch it? What did you first think about it? And what did you think upon sort of revisiting now for this podcast? So I first discovered it uh, back in the early, uh, well, yeah, back in the early 2000s, BBC4 was like broadcasting a lot of world cinema and uh, through review programs and like regular film broadcasts and like series dedicated to countries and directors. And um, that's how I encountered um, a pitch upon for a cephical, um, through reviews of films like Tropical Malady, uh, which won the Cannes 2004 Jury Prize, I think. Um, Syndromes of a, and a Century. And um, 
Uncle Boomy. Uh, I remember a lot of hype around it at the time, and uh, I've kind of been ambivalent about it uh, ever since. And um, actually, the first Bereshevkal film I watched was at the museum that I work at, uh, which was like um, one of his uh, short films uh, involving two projectors, uh, a shadow play called Invisibility, and. Um, Essentially, there were like scenes of shadows of people and objects like um, sewing machines, and they could be interpreted in ways that obliquely reference Thailand's history of um, civil unrest and uh, government crackdowns. And um, so, for example, you'd have a shot of a person, um, and then the camera would move slightly, and like uh, you would notice maybe that person's holding a rifle, but then it turns into a broom, something like that, and. Um, the words and phrases that I would use to describe it, uh, like dreamlike, and um, that's uh, like probably like the words I would use to describe Uncle Boomy. It's kind of like a film I was charmed by, even though I entered into like viewing it for the first time ever for this podcast with a degree of ambivalence. I find it's like um, simple on the surface as a story of reincarnation, but it has this wonderful dreamlike atmosphere that is carried through. By some really uh, interesting aesthetic choices in how it presents little, little vignettes of like the past lives, and um, there's like a documentary uh, feel to it as well, which um, uh, balance quite nicely with like the different parts of magical realism that you would see. Uh, so it was like slow paced, but I didn't find it frustrating. It's more gentle and meditative, and I really got into the atmosphere of the film. Um, the lives of the characters and um when the supernatural stuff floated in and out of the story i found it uh like uh i i could keep suspending my disbelief essentially and um i actually found it a re- reassuring take on mortality yeah just to interject quickly i mean i think the, the word that you use magical realism i think that perfectly describes sort of like the approach to the supernatural that this film uh takes i mean we can go into it more if we want to but i i think uh, uh the joe <laughs> Uh, has said that he believes in a lot of it, a lot of like the spirituality and animism and reincarnation yeah. uh, that that are depicted in like a, a lot of his films. So perhaps he doesn't see it as magical realism, but I think that's beside the point uh, because we can still interpret it, the film in our own way. Yeah, for, for like a, a Westerner such as myself, um, uh, that, like, that's, that was my first sort of uh, label to put on it, magical realism. But I, I ended up enjoying the film a lot because it's quite reassuring take on um, mortality, essentially. Absolutely. So with respect to my history with that, I remember, so I, uh, I am proud to say that I, I was aware with, uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, this director before the sort of like the big explosion that he had in popularity after the Cannes uh, Film Festival. Uh, although, the, uh, like a rather unusual way, because I, I think if you, if you, I don't know how, you know, how much you followed this, but if you maybe remember, yes, he was known in the very, you know, cinephile critical community because of Tropical Malady, because of Syndrome Center Century, maybe some of his more eccentric art pieces, but in sort of like the mainstream critical community, he was, I never remember him being mentioned. And after the Cannes, even during that Cannes Festival, because I do follow festivals, semi-regularly he was not i don't remember him being favorite by critics and then when he when he won he was like almost an explosion of popularity and every critic was was like 
oh, this is the best film of the year. You have to watch this film. It's going to be in cinemas. Please go watch it because it's going to blow your mind. I think that the, I, I always found that strange because I don't think this is that kind of a film. Uh, maybe shows how certain <laughs> sometimes the critical community is a bit disconnected from what is and what isn't popularly appealing. Yeah. Uh, but that's uh, that's besides the point. Um, I was uh, I discovered him in the mid two thousand in the mid early odds, so like 2006, 2007, because I don't know if you remember this as well, but there was also sort of a, uh, an explosion in popularity of, uh, Thai action films around the time. Uh, was it like Ong Bak? Exactly. Yeah. So you had Tony, Tony Ja, ja Tony Ja, who seemed to be like a huge deal. And then everybody forgot about him like five years later. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's still making movies and he's actually making movies in Hollywood, which is good for him. But, uh, he was in like from 2003, which is Ong Back, and then Ong Back Two in 2007. Then he also had that Elephant movie in 2006. Uh, Tom Yung Gong, which is a I think from the point of view of action choreography, it's maybe one of the best films. If you haven't seen it, I strongly recommend it. Fantastic from the spec. As a, as a martial arts movie, I think it's mostly your typical run of the mill story for yeah. a martial arts movie. But the action is just phenomenal. And then I think he had a nervous breakdown, like in the late like 2009, 2010, and he became a Buddhist monk for a while. And then he, of course, came out of... Blimey. Uh, he came out of that. I think, I think it was like a way to, to escape certain contract, like certain predatory contract obligations that he had with the film studio that he was working at the time. And if he, he became a Buddhist monk to sort of annul that, and then once the lawyers took care of it, he came back out of retirement and started making movies again. Okay. Uh, although not with, not with the same popularity. But anyway... Um, there was another one called The Beautiful Boxer. If you, I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I remember reviews of it at the time. Like a transgender boxer, right? Yeah, yeah. So the story of a, of a real person, like a, a biopic about sort of a transgender male to female boxer who starts as a male boxer, but then transitions into female, and then he's allowed to participate into female boxing. Yeah. And that also made a lot of ways in the West. So, so all these kind of piqued my interest, and I said, let me research Thai cinema a little bit more. And uh, Apichatpong, where Seth Akul sort of came up. And I, I remember the film that I watched at the time was Tropical Malady, and I did not like it. I did not... Uh, <laughs> not that I did not like it, but it just didn't necessarily connect with me that much. I, I appreciated its sort of philosophical bent or everything that you mentioned about it. It's sort of like meditative nature. It's it's uh, it's uh, pondering about sort of like the uh, the meaning of life through the medium of magical realism and supernatural. But even so, I didn't... Uh, it just didn't connect with me. And then when, when the, the whole thing can happened, I sought out to, to watch uh, Uncle Bon Me immediately as it was uh, the moment you became available in home media. And I kind of had the same feeling. I, uh, I appreciated the sort of like the, the meditative aspects of the film. The, especially uh, I read a lot about it, how a lot of people sort of uh, uh, connected it with uh, as a metaphor for cinema and as a metaphor for the equivalence between sort of memory the fleeting nature of memory and cinema used as a tool for memory as it sort of like records the memory of civilization. Uh, and it's also in a more metafictional sense how it's used as a tool to sort of like express the, the memories of the creator, that is the filmmaker and all that. And sort of I could appreciate it uh, in that sense, but even like from a more emotional sense, it just didn't, I didn't, I didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily feel sort of like this soothing, uh, the feeling that I think the director has described in interviews uh, in regards to making that. And I always felt with both Tropical Malady and with um, Uncle Bone Me that 
this is not a film for me in the sense that I'm, it's kind of like there's a very specific Buddhist and Thai nature to the film that I'm just not equipped to understand. And even now, like as, 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 uh, as soon as like this, I was reading for uh, like papers and, and, um, and articles and interviews about this film. And I, I understand, I know more about Thai culture and the references. Even now I feel like I'm, I'm, there's an inside joke that I'm not part of, that I'm sort of like excluded from, from understanding everything that is makes up the DNA of this film that I'm just, I just don't, because I did not grow up in that culture. I don't, I don't know the, the spiritual, the religious, the uh, sort of like the, and the culture to put it simply that I just, like will never be an equipped to understand this movie. Yeah, I mean, um, I've done like very little research for this episode, but um, reincarnations like universally known and understood in a variety of cultures, and um, it's used in uh, all sorts of like religious and fiction texts in different contexts. So I just went with the flow, and um, I wasn't too concerned about the details. I was just like charmed by the different stories that were put on screen and like how it actually all gelled together because of the jungle setting and it managed to slip in and out of like uh like ancient times where Boonmi is he either the princess or is he like the catfish and uh, like the tryst that Or you see the servant. Yeah. The servant that uh that brings her to that spot and she dismisses very easily. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kinda of like um it's like things that I didn't dwell too deeply upon i just enjoyed like the little sections is he the water buffalo at the very beginning um yeah uh is his dream of the future um uh is it is it like another life that he can perhaps glimpse and uh like the bit at the end where you have the nephew tong where he sees like a double of himself and his aunt is that like a, a multiverse type of thing is that science fiction like there are all these different ideas um that are floating around that because of like the the tone of the film, it's uh, it, I didn't question them too much. They all gelled together for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, all those parts I was fine too. And and the film is very. It's not flashy, but it is nevertheless beautiful to look at. I think I think uh, the the Chet Pong and whoever his cinematographer were, they definitely have a good eye for composition. Uh, especially the image. I mean, the image that everybody knows from the film is the the red eyes of the monkey ghosts the bigfoots that is uh, like absolute like grade a horror stuff because when that monkey ghost emerges from the jungle it was just horrifying and when it creeps up the stairs oh my my skin was crawling yeah i I never i never got a horror sense maybe because i I knew that there was no way this movie was horror uh it's sort of i took it as a more of a surrealist thing and it didn't seem to like again, the cultural stuff that I'm talking about is, you know, like the 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 in this world that the inhabitants live, like ghosts and monkey ghosts are uh, are are a normal thing. They're not like the the shock that they have upon seeing his uh, old dead wife's ghost appear in the dinner table. It is shockingly brief. Yeah. They they don't question it. They don't. Uh, they don't. Uh, they're not scared by it. It's like, oh hey, did you get that gift that I sent you through? Whatever. I'm assuming there's like a standard belief in Buddhists that if you leave something by some grave, they will get it in the afterlife. Well, you see this in um, Japan as well, where people leave offerings at like shrines and graves. 
and it's common across Asian cultures, it seems. And like um, in Japan, where you've got Shintoism, um, like gods can emerge from um, like features of the natural landscape, um, like objects that are old enough, um, like a hundred years old or more, can can uh, um, get spirits and uh, be inhabited by spirits. So seeing it in a wider cosmos like that, I kind of just went with it. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. Um, another thing that I mean, this is more common, you know, watching movies from cultures that you're not familiar with is um, the acting. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Certain actor choices looked a little bit peculiar to me, and I wasn't sure if that was because I didn't, I wasn't able to sort of like it didn't translate, or because it was a deliberate choice. Like, and I, I laughed a little bit at this when he talks about killing communists. He says it in such a matter of fact way like like a like a hollywood movie you would have zoomed into his face and he would like uh there would be like a shiver in his voice and whatnot and regret and all that but no he just says that there's almost no change in emotion between him saying that he killed a lot of communists it's, it's like resignation it's like resignation i i'm i've got this disease because i just killed too many communists or, or because he stepped on a lot of ants like both of them seem to have like to say the same echo emotional resonance and again i don't know if there's something about like that doesn't translate or we're meant to like s interpret something out of that because it's a deliberate choice in uh in uh a, from you know from the director and the actor so there is that so that's again that's that's something that i'm not i'm not exactly sure which way to to interpret it as well um the actor playing uncle boonmi is a non-professional and so his kind of like um, sort of flat delivery kind of fits in with that. But also I think it fits. But he's quite emotional at, like in, when he's close to the death, when they go into the cage. I think he actually acts more in that, in that scene. So he's definitely capable of it. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more, more likely it's a deliberate choice from the director. Yeah, it, it, I, yeah, which is what I was going to say next. It actually fits in with like the gentle tone of the film. It's kind of like this acceptance that he's on the verge of death and he's just recounting what's happened in like his current life where he's been part of a very brutal regime that um tortures and murders and rapes uh, like local people in the area and in the 70s, 60s and 70s and um like he, he's also recounting his past lives as like like these wonders suddenly start opening themselves up to him but then then what then what are we to make of that? Like what I said, that you know, his his uh, description of tortures of uh, of the atrocities that he's done, perhaps perhaps through no fault of his own, he was just a you know a young kid who was following orders, and you know him saying, well, I, it could also be because I stepped on a lot of ants, and they're both kind of seem to carry the same emotional weight in his acting, and like so, what what are we to interpret out of that? Is it is it like you know? Is it he's saying well? In the grand scheme of the universe, these don't matter. I mean, that could be, but I feel like that's way too cynical to be like what the director is saying. Or is it something else that maybe I don't have the context to interpret in in Buddhist in Buddhist uh, philosophy? I just felt like he was taking into account everything he had done, and um, we have to be aware that, like a peach pong for a sephkal, cannot criticize what happened in the country because there's like censorship laws. In Thailand, that, was, I mean that that would be a plausible explanation, but doesn't that then diminish the film a little bit? I think just relying, re, re, 
Yeah, yeah, you're relying on the audience to infer certain things. Yeah. Yeah. I like I don't want to believe that. I, I would like to believe that that uh that it's deliberate and he's trying like I I'd like to believe that. Although of course there is I read a lot about how the Thai government censored his previous films. Yeah. Like in uh in one film they wouldn't allow bad depiction of uh, Buddhist monks. But then like we we've talked about how people like there's the initial shock at seeing the supernatural and then they just accept it. And I think this is just part of like the same sort of like tone of the film, but like these terrible things have happened, but people have learned to accept it. I mean, you could probably imagine that uh, Boonwee's probably tried to make amends for what's happened. Perhaps he feels great regret. I agree with you partially, but also partially disagree because I, I think it's more than just stone because even in Tropical Melody, there's a lot of talk of people. There's no supernatural well, in the first half of the film the second half there's actually supernatural in that film too in the second half but in the first half they talk about supernatural as though they believe them yeah so it's, i think it's meant to say that this is part of pe- people's everyday belief that they say well uh, if you go to this guy's grave he'll come in your dreams and blah 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 uh something like that is that there's actually even mention like one of the characters in the first half because that's i think like uh, uh syndrome in a century tropical maladies two films two two parts of different stories that are sort of related thematically only, but not necessarily uh, by plot or characters. And in the first half, one of the characters, well, did I ever tell you about my uncle who could recall his past lives? Uh, So it's, there's definitely, there's definitely, I think this story or this character, so to speak, has been in, in uh, Apichat Pong's mind for a long time. Yeah. He actually did a short film called Little to Uncle Boonmi as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think wasn't that part of the project primitive? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely sort of like a topic that's explored. But my original point is that, for example, the, their reaction to the supernatural, I don't think it's it's purely tonal, although it it is definitely tonal. But it's also, I think it's it is represents the culture that these are this is a culture, these are people, or maybe characters specifically, for whom this is real. This is part of everyday life. They expect this to happen. They just didn't expect it to happen in that moment, for example. Hence the the brief surprise. Yeah, that, um, I, I got that sense as well. Yeah, and that, that's why I'm like in the same vein, well, how are we to take, what does that say about the characters that he sort of like views the killing of the communists as so matter of fact, like, and I'm not, I'm, I'm sounding critical, but I'm not being critical. I'm genuinely trying to sort of like understand. I know the film is trying to tell me something. Yeah, trying, what, what you're trying to pass, what it's doing in that, yeah. Exactly. And, and I think when, uh, there's a line from his. Is that his sister-in-law? His sister-in-law. Yeah, she's married. Uh, she's the sister of Hawaii, the wife. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're right. Yes. Uh, and she says, "Well, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. You were just doing your job." I think that line might be to appease the censors. Mm. But I think the comparison between communists and ants. Uh, it sounds like a, like a perfect way to to, to appease an anti-communist. Uh, uh, ah, but government, it, but but isn't that also like a, a Buddhist thing that sort of like um, all life is equal, so to speak? Well, maybe. I, so I, I, that's why I sort of mentioned that it's like all of these are are small minded in terms of like the bigger picture of the universe. Of, yeah, you know, of a, a a person who can recall all his past lives is um, uh, makes any given life less significant, right? And is that what he's trying to? Is that sort of like the 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 you know, part of the Buddhist philosophy that 
he engages in. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, so I think a valid interpretation. The only thing I would say is that I find it a little bit cynical. Of course, I also am not a Buddhist, so maybe that's why I do find it a little bit cynical. I think, I think a lot of people would, can find a lot of Buddhism cynical if, uh, if they view it from a Western point of view, I suppose. There is no definitive answer as to what will happen in the afterlife you're giving um, uh, in the film. Yeah. I think there's just lots of options. And it even goes sci-fi at the end where you've got like the doubles appearing. Yeah. There is, um, there, it reminded me, for example, this talk about memory, about recollection, about you know who he is and why things happen to him as of though there's this uh, karma, which is, again, I think, is it a Buddhist or a Hinduist thing? I'm not sure. I think it's more more of a Hindu thing. But anyway, I'm sure maybe there's something related because they both originated from India, yeah. adjacent ter- adjacent territory. So, I mean India is a big place, but there, I'm sure there's some influence. The exchange of um, ideas. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, is there uh like uh, it reminded me a lot of Ghost in the Shell, particularly how Ghost in the Shell sort of like explores the connection between memory and identity. There's that famous life in the end by the puppet master who says, mankind cannot define memory, yet memory defines mankind. It's this idea that memory is the only thread between who we are now and who we are when we're born. If, you, if somehow all your memories got erased, are you the same person? I mean, it's a, it's a millennia-long philosophical question about what exactly constitutes identity. Is it memories is something more inherent to your spirit, to your psyche, whatever? Uh, and I think, like, I think Apichat Pong definitely explores that aspect, but he extends it to who this person is if he's not just has his memory, but the memory of all his past lives, right? How does that change who he is? He's only recalling this as he nears death. So each life is the creation of a new set of memories, and then he just moves on to the next phase in the continuum. Well, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that, since they're moving on to the continuum. So it seems like everybody moves on to a, like a, a, another life, essentially. And it just keeps on going. Yeah, but I mean, right now as he's dying, he's remembering all of them, yeah. right? And it's, it is triggering an identity crossing as to who am I and why is this happening to me? Yeah, or maybe he, I think it's more a, a degree of acceptance that he's part of a wider chain of events. Perhaps he never thought of it. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's a, definitely a valid way to look at it. And I think there's also, I think in all his films, a picture, uh, uh, Joe explores, you know, like the, the meaning of cinema and sort of like the, the way that the cinema, that sort of like cinema can be utilized, uh, like sort of a, a, essentially a modern technology to explore these sort of ancient ideas. And I think uh, uh, the, the perfect example is what you said, which can be interpreted as science fiction, but I, I think it's more like a uh, 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 Pong showcasing the powers of cinema, where you have the Buddhist looking at himself watching TV as of uh, uh, literalizing this out of body experience that he's kind of having at the moment. Uh, uh, and he said, "I think I'm not. I'm not sure exactly why what he means by this, but he said that I the film for me. He said in an interview showcases the death of cinema." Okay. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I was listening to an interview he did at the Locarno Film Festival and a Q&A, 
where someone asked him about um, science and cinema, and I, I can't remember any of the details apart from he had a conversation with a Buddhist priest, and the Buddhist priest asked what he did as a profession, and um, a Pitchpong replied that he's a filmmaker, and the priest laughed and said, you don't need to be a filmmaker because like everything you need to create stuff is in your head. And um, I think that's like being explored in this film. Yeah, and it's uh, the particular book uh, I don't know if it's the book that he inspired to, uh, that he was he reading to inspire from this, from this. He even said in an interview, he said that that actually priest was from his village that he grew up, that claimed to recall his past lives. Yeah, it's like a, a temple that was next to his house that his father visited quite often. Yeah, and the that particular, he described it as closing his eyes and seeing his past lives projected like a camera, like a projector and camera. Yeah, and you do have that uh, scene in um, Uncle Boon Me where he describes like um, not being able to see, but then he launches into that sort of whole talking about the dream of a future city. Yeah, like towards the end, where, uh, where towards the end of his life, I mean. Yeah, when he's in the cave where his first life began, and he's able to maybe get a glimpse of what will be in the future for him. Yeah, and there's also like talking back to sort of like missing references and whatnot. I mean, he. He shot this film in 16 uh, millimeter, and there's apparently, and I read this from reviews, I have absolutely no frame of reference to compare it, but there's a lot of references from from, uh, the director for old Thai films and serials, like like the the monkey ghosts are inspired from like various uh, effects on old monster movies in Thailand. Yeah, he's also like a fan of B-movies such as Jaws and Star Crash. Joy is a B movie, you think? Oh, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Yeah, that's Jaws. Is a, I don't. I never considered that a B movie. Hmm. But anyway, that's <laughs> besides the point. But uh, yeah, so there's that. I mean, of course, yeah. So there's he's so there's like historical dramas where he's talking about. Of course, he gives it his own spin. I doubt many Thai historical drama, dramas have a woman uh, having sex with a catfish. Uh, no. Well, that, that like the 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 setup. Uh, had it and the the execution felt like a fairy tale. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So he has, and then the the scene in the cave is more like cinema verite, right? Yeah. The whole like the the lead up to the cave felt like a horror movie where you had like um the the monkeys going through the trees and like the the family sort of panicking slightly, and then you get to the cave and it is cinema verite and using natural light. As yeah, people like, there's a, like it seems like there's a flashlight attached to the camera, right? And like wherever the flashlight moves is the camera. Yeah, like it reminded me a lot of uh, Blair Witch Project. Like it felt like the same shooting style, basically. Yeah. Yes. And he does something similar in the second part of Tropical Malady. Not not quite as obvious, but there's like it's about essentially a soldier lost in a forest, and there's a lot of like that kind of like shooting style in that one as well. Yeah, this is like a documentary like style when they're on the farm and he's explaining how he's expanded it as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the last piece is kind of like a, uh, I think it's Tong, right? It's the same nephew who visited him, and it's his mother and presumably his sister. Yeah, the guy that plays Tong appears in Syndromes and the Century as a Buddhist priest in that as well and i believe he's in tropical malady i haven't seen it maybe perhaps i didn't recognize him but could be but he seems to be like a professional actor he certainly has more credits to his name and the person who plays jen the sister-in-law has more credits she's in um syndromes and the century oh i like i wasn't exactly sure again what to make of that final scene 
Like, he's cl- there's clearly like a, a shirking of duties. Like, the Tong finds the Buddhist lifestyle too too constricting. And even though he's going to be done in like a, a couple of days, he just can't sleep. He, he felt like he needed to take a shower. Yeah, it's too cold. Yeah, and it's like, I, like I, again, I'm not, there's something there that, like, I feel like I'm missing, like I'm left out. And there's something, there's a connection that I'm supposed to make. Is it, I'm guess, specific to Thai culture? This like, I know like Thai uh, people are like predominantly Buddhists, right? Yeah. Uh, it's predominantly like a massively Buddhist country. And it's like, uh, obviously not fanatical, I don't think. But it's it's uh, you know a lot of it's it's a strong strong like one of the strongest following Buddhist countries of East Asia, I believe. But that uh, isn't that like a, a a common sort of trope, like the naughty sort of uh, uh, the dis the, the dissolute religious person, like uh, t- uh like there's lots of comedy um in Thai films or even Nepalese films and Japanese films about Buddhists who. They should be um, practicing like uh, severe form of religion, but they've got like CD players and so forth, and they've got iPhones. Like um, the uh, there's a film Fancy Dance with um, Motoki um, Masahiro Motoki, where he's like a, a a punk singer who goes to like a Buddhist uh, temple to uh, to to take over he's supposed to take over from his father and um like he does a very very poor job because he can't quite give up his girlfriend and like um like modern amenities yeah of course the most out- outrageous example is uh stephen joe's god of cookery oh where he goes, yeah he, he locks himself to a buddhist temple and every time he tries to escape like they beat the shit out of him yeah it's the bronze men <laughs> yeah in, in the most comical manner possible and then they do the stands yeah. Uh, afterwards, it's it's ridiculous. But yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know that necessarily this is part of that tradition. Um, and you know, because there's then then of course, like we mentioned already a couple times, there's that moment where there's that out of body experience where Tong and his mother are watching the three of them like gleaned on the TV, and I, I forget exactly what the TV is. There's a news. I think they're watching the news, and I forget what the the news is talking about it at that moment, but they're kind of glued to the TV, right? But like some of the images have soldiers, some of them have people wearing face masks. Exactly, yeah. So there's like a tragedy happening, like presumably, but it seems like the mother, the mother that is outside, the, the, not the mother who's watching the TV, but the version of the mother who's about to go eat at a restaurant with Tong, seems to be completely oblivious to it. It's completely... Yeah. Um, uninterested and that's and Tong kind of he seems to be more focused not on the news but he's focused on sort of like the duality of himself as he perceives it yeah but that was like that and um seeing the still photographs and like the shadow monkey um costume which like again looks like bigfoot when you see those like that uh home video footage of bigfoot looking at the cameraman uh those took me out of it because it's kind of like uh the artificiality after having like this um sort of magical experience was um highlighted and i just put that part down again i'm sorry to repeat myself but just to like a multiverse and it was like philosophical saying you know there's more ways to live life um and there's more to life that you know after death i guess and that's how i accepted it yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it's, there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot about this film that I just did not, like, I, I enjoy this kind of film in, in the sense that it's like a puzzle that I can, I can try to, I mean, of course, 
great films don't really answer questions. They really ask. I mean, they don't an- give answers. They give really good questions and things to to think about. But that's the thing about well, like where Sethical Styles is that I'm not. I'm not sure what exactly is trying to make me think about. It. I'm not. And I'm not entirely convinced that he knows. I think he's. A, and I'm not saying this is a negative thing, but I think he's an, a filmmaker that perhaps oper- operates in a subconscious level. He's just kind of. Kind of like you know the surrealist that they see images and they dream and they make a painting and then uh, people's critics spend a hundred years trying to understand what the what the artist meant with that even though they didn't really mean anything about it. they just saw something and they depicted it. Uh, yeah, like uh, he's uh, a fan of narrative cinema, experimental cinema, and he's trying to meld the two together. And he said, like with absolutely no doubt, that this is an experimental film. Like he yeah. said, this is an experimental film. That's why I initially mentioned that perhaps its its attention, even its comp- comp- competing in a festival, was perhaps incidental. I don't know that that was the original intention while he made the film. He also said that he originally intended to make it a little bit more explicit, like to use more conventional means, like flashbacks and uh, or like visual cues about you know what is the present as Uncle Bonmi recalling past lives and what is the past, but what is the actual past lives? And I think the final pro. The final uh, product has none of that. And I don't even think there's a mention from him like, oh, I recall once I was a tiger or something. There's yeah, absolutely no mention. It's left for the viewer to infer what's going on, how these animals are connected to him. And yeah, I, I find it uh, surprisingly enjoyable because I thought I might be like impatient or um, like the slow style might put me off. Like Ho Xiao Xian's The Assassin didn't quite work for me, but this one did work for me because I just accepted uh, what was on screen. There's also, I think, a small segment about uh, immigrants, which I think oh, I, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think this is a political movie, but I do think this is more of a. If it has a message, it's like perhaps we should reflect more closely about our history and how our history connects to our present. It, be, it that's due to the setting of like Northeast Thailand which is close to the Laotian border. Um, that's how communism traveled from Vietnam through Laos into Thailand. And these farmers living in the area felt like communism was a really great idea. And the government was like, no. And there was a severe crackdown. Yeah. But even like, I think there's like, a, there seems to be still a stigma towards Laos, Laosian immigrants from the characters. Like, like he had to say, no, he's He's one of the good ones, essentially. I mean, it doesn't say that, but that's a sense, sort of like kind of what he says. Yeah, La- Laos is a poorer country compared to Thailand. so I, I can imagine, yeah. You can imagine, yeah. There's probably going to be some prejudice, especially from the older character. Yeah. I, I don't know if, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Ingmar Bergman's later films, like uh, Persona and uh, Cries and Whisper, but it reminded me a lot of that, especially the style, sort of like the inward-looking meditative uh, light on narrative style where uh, where but it says definitely Apichapong is so it feels more comfortable in and it reminded me a lot of that. Yeah. Did you did you think this was close to Kiristami um in terms of like um oh, what was the film we watched? A Taste of Cherry. Like it just it presents these images. I read that uh I read at least a couple of reviews where they mentioned that Apichapong is a fan of Kiristami yeah, he's mentioned it in an interview that when he was in Chicago, he discovered Kiristami, Ho Xiaoxian, Tsai Mingliang. And uh, yeah, it got me thinking, is there a connection? Is there like an influence? No, I didn't see it. Again, I haven't seen that many. I mean, just comparing it to the one that we saw, Taste of Cherry. Yes, they're, in the sense, both are 
similar in the sense they they the story the metaphor is more important than the actual narrative. But other than that, I just did not see the connection like at all with at least the taste of cherry. Maybe there are other Kiarostami films that would be more reminiscent of what uh, a picture to Kong a, a picture Pong is doing. But I I did not see it. I don't know about you if, if you did. No, I was, I was thinking about that. Perhaps like um, not trying to give too much context or backstories and just letting the viewer make up their own minds. But uh, yeah, I'm still struggling to see a connection. Okay, so I think uh, the question that we always ask is, so we both, I think we both spoke very highly of this film, but do we think it deserved all the praise and awards that it got? So it competed at the Cannes Film Festival when it took the Palme d'Or, and I think it was in competition with Lee Chang-dong's poetry. Yes. Which, I, I, I think it might be, the su- poetry might be the superior film. And uh, other uh Films competing at Cannes that year were Outraged by Takeshi Kitano, Fair Game, um, which is a forgettable spy thriller that was very topical. Another year by by Mike Lee, certified copy by Abbas Kiarostami. I wonder if they met and talked. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I, I liked um, Uncle Boon Me, but uh, a part of me wants to say Poetry is the superior film. I would say the same thing. I would say that... Uh... Poetry and the film that won the grand prize of the jury of gods and men by Xavier Beauvoir. I both uh, I love that film, but I both considered uh, consider them superior films. I don't know how to put this, but that's not to diminish the value of uh, of uh, Uncle Boomy. Uh, but I think there's maybe this separation that I just could not help but feel with me myself and perhaps a person that might be watching this film that is ingrained in that culture and appreciate it. So I'm not. That said, I'm not, like, I'm okay with this winning. Like, I don't mind it winning, but if it was, in my view, poetry should have won, or maybe of Gods and Men should have won, probably poetry, I think that was the, be- the one of the best films of that year. Yeah. Uh, I'm not upset that it won. I was a little bit surprised by how hyped this was in the critical community. Like yeah. I mentioned at the beginning, I just, I don't, like, I can understand maybe the more academic, and this is a, this is a movie perfect for academics. I mean, if, if you go to JSTOR, uh, I'm not sure if you know what that is. That is like a database for peer-reviewed Academic papers. papers. And, yeah. Yeah. If you search, you're going to find so many papers. And I, I try to read some of them. I skim some of them. It's fascinating discussions that academics can have about this film. But the more mainstream critics, I was surprised at how taken. This doesn't seem like a film that would uh, would take that appeal. And I, I think perhaps it's had didn't necessarily make the impact that those people were hoping because I don't think that many people still talk about Uncle Boomy, although he definitely did put a picture pong on the map. So people, a lot of people know who he is, and they know him as the as the Thai director with a hard name to pronounce. But at least they know who he is. I don't know that the film has survived or has had quite the legacy that perhaps people thought in 2010, where it won the Palme d'Or. Uh, but I do think it deserves some amount of praise. I don't necessarily think it deserved all the awards that it got at the time. Well, 2010 was a great year for film. You had like uh, Inception, Shutter Island, Insidious, The Social Network. I wonder why it didn't make the Oscars. It didn't even make the shortlist. I don't know. It, I, I think it would have... Perhaps because the hype had died down a little bit by then. Because like, think about Cannes is in May. Yeah. And s- submissions for the Oscars happen like around October, November. Yeah. 
and the decision, like the selections happen in January. So I think perhaps the hype had died down and it just, <laughs> I think voters did not necessarily feel, feel the need to, to kind of, to really like respond to the critical community. Yeah. Uh, let me see 2010 Oscars. Uh, I just want to see who was nominated that year. It was it's a better in a better world a Danish film by Susan Beer. A good film. I don't know that I would say it's better than this. I mean they're very different. That's a very uh that's a very like narrative centered film. Beautiful from Mexico by uh, Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu. Dogtooth, the Greek film which I thought it was fantastic. Mm. I would also rate it higher uh higher than uh than Uncle Boomy, although I, I, I don't necessarily hold that as an objective opinion. I, I think that's a very personal take on the film where I, I really enjoyed that film. Looking at the Asian Film Awards of 2011, and it doesn't have that many nominations, just Best yeah. Film. I, again, I think like a lo- like that was probably like them responding to hype. We definitely have to recognize the film because it won, you know, like a top three, right? It was the first. Thai film to win and the top three being of course Khan, Venice, Khan and Berlin, right? Yeah. And it was the first Thai film and of course an Asian film from East Asia uh that won. I think they had to recognize it, but I don't necessarily think that it was again, I I, I this is a film that I, I love people to talk about that I think should be what should be studied. And it's something that, you know, it's academically rich film to discuss and try to analyze and dissect. But I, I just, I, I, I can understand why the mainstream community would not necessarily latch onto it, and I was surprised that they did as much as they did. To be, to be honest. Yeah, I, I went in ambivalent, and I was, and I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't resent <laughs> the fact that it was absolutely awards. not, absolutely not. So to to see some of the films that were in the sort of like Asian films that were in the Asian Film Awards that were kind of. Popular, of course. Thirteen Assassins. I I think that film is overrated. Oh uh, no! <laughs> oh, you don't you, you don't agree I, with I me? I saw that twice at the cinema. Oh, I loved it. I mean, I'm most likely wrong, and you're right because everybody agrees with you, and everybody disagrees with me. <laughs> I, for the life of me, don't understand why it felt to me like a your run of the mill action movie. I did not get the appeal at all. But again, I'm I'm I I I am fully aware that I'm alone in that in that opinion. I don't know. Maybe I might change my opinion if I rewatch it again. Maybe I don't know. I don't. I, I. I don't think so because I think there's definitely something wrong with me since I seem to be the only one who did not care about that film. But the Yellow Sea by Na Hong Jing, I thought that was a great movie. Again, very. It's. It's hard to compare any of these movies with, with Uncle Boomy because they're just. Again, Uncle Boomy is an experimental film. Is a museum piece, right? Yeah, it's totally a, different. It's part yeah. of an art project, so it's. It's. It's almost unfair. But again, we do have to kind of. I mean, our awards are about making choices, so it's almost inevitable. But, you know, The Yellow Sea, Poetry, Confessions by Tatsuya Nakajima, Nakashima, I mean, it's, that's more of a mainstream film, but it's a fantastic film. Yeah. And we even had Norwegian Wood. Norwegian Wood, which is, again, it is what it is. It's not, it's not fantastic, but I, I enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah. And, uh, I, saw I saw The, the Devil. Devil. Yeah. Another film which I enjoy, but I don't know, I, I feel like that's also one that might be a bit overrated. I think it was a lot of people's in the West introduction to Korean cinema and yes. Kim Ji-won. And I think people reacted to that more so than the actual quality. I think people who have seen other Kim Ji-won films or other Korean titles would probably are not as as uh, 
as hard on that film. Although it is, I think it's a good thriller. It's a solid thriller. And yeah. I, can, I, think, I think we can be happy about that. All right. So anything else about Uncle Boomi that uh, we uh, did not discuss and that perhaps we should mention before closing the episode? I mean, it is a hard film to talk about simply because it is so dense and so so rich in references and so rich in culture, but also so cryptic and philosophical. And it's also when I can, I've, I can find, I can see myself rewatching it again and again. And I, I, I had seen it twice before. Yeah. Not necessarily because I enjoyed it, although I, you know, I do find enjoyment in it, but because I'm it almost as a challenge, like, can I yeah. understand it? Can I, can I get something out of it? And I think it's. The cultural context is a bit too far removed. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, so I think that was it for our discussion uh, of, of Uncle Boonmei, who can recall his past life by Apichatpong, where it's ethical. A great film, uh, a special film in many ways. I think it's not, it's definitely not a kind of film that you would expect to have mainstream success, but I do ultimately think it is a, a worthwhile film to check out. If not for the challenge of exploring its meaning, its cultural context, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, before we leave, do you, uh, could you guess what you were in a past life, maybe? Uh, I, I would love to have been a person regardless of what person. <laughs> but uh, that, that would be my wish. But if I were to guess, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what, perhaps, if there's any connection. Like, something about this life could clue me into what I was in a past life. Maybe a fish, because I find fish disgusting. <laughs> That, maybe you were fish as punishment for something in the life before. Maybe. What about you? Um, I feel like perhaps I'm being... Uh, I don't know. I think in the next life, it would be quite interesting to be a bird just to get away from people. Oh. <laughs> well, with the amount of pollution that's going on, maybe you don't want to be a bird. Yeah, it's... Yeah, you know, people in general are just horrible. <laughs> No, I have utter faith in humanity that we can turn this around and we can stop climate collapse. Anything can happen. Absolutely. 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 I'm right there. Uh, okay, so next week, uh, for next, not next week, but next episode, we are going back to South Korea with uh, the legendary 2003 film by Park Chan-wook, Old Boy. Until then, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, please let us know at heroic-burgatory.blogspot.com. Or you can reach us through Twitter at Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. ไม่ไม่มันค่อยๆสั่นในท้องมันก็
ไม่ต